I'm Joanne Ozug, and you are listening to The Road to Carnivore, Episode 6. In this episode, we're going to talk about how insane today's food environment is. If you're someone who has a hard time resisting food, this concept is such a revelation because you find out that to some degree, it's not your fault. We are constantly surrounded by hyperpalatable things to eat, and we are constantly prompted to eat. Every occasion is marked with food. And the first thing I want to tell you is that it wasn't always like this. For as long as I've been alive, snacks and constant eating have been normal. But before the 1950s, snacking wasn't a thing. It was invented by food manufacturers. And what's fascinating is that early on, the packaging had to calm people's fears about eating snacks. In the show notes, I've linked to a page on the Smithsonian National Museum of American History's website that shows a picture of a potato chip tin that was made in 1961. And it is so ridiculous. It says on the package in big, bold red letters, a healthy food on the alkaline side, the new era scientifically processed potato chips made from carefully selected potatoes processed in hydrogenated vegetable shortening with salt added. And there are all these figures on the front of thin people golfing and skiing and diving and horseback riding. They're really trying to make it look like it's health food for sophisticated athletic people. And the webpage has great commentary on it. They say, food companies understood that advertising products in terms of science and health would appeal to consumers in the 1950s. The new era potato chip tin promised health and vitality through scientifically processed snacks. It also encouraged consumers to feast without fear, a slogan to erase anxieties about overindulging, a common problem with snacks. So before snacking was normal, people were hesitant to eat them over fear of their health. And the link I shared has a great graph that shows how consumption of snacks and candy skyrocketed in the 1970s, and not surprisingly, our BMI did right along with it. I really wanted to share this first because I don't know how old you are, but there's a good chance that like me, snacking and constant eating have always been part of normal behavior. But this is actually a relatively new behavior historically. These snacks, they're not actually food. Most of us already know this and know it's manufactured processed junk. There's generally no nutritional value in things that you can just unwrap and eat. What it really is, is entertainment for your mouth and brain, usually at the expense of your body. And snacking on these things was not something that was normalized until the last 50-ish years. There were no snack breaks in school. There was no break room at work with donuts. People didn't eat during business meetings that would have been considered extremely inappropriate. And now this is all completely commonplace. And the thing that is so hard about all of this when you're not aware is that we are encouraged to eat from multiple cues often all at the same time. And understanding these cues is a big part of understanding why your food environment is hard for a lot of people. First, we are encouraged to eat by our own brains and the dopamine reward system. I already talked about this in the last episode, just how this cycle works and how powerful it is, and the fact that willpower does not work against our primal brains and this circuit. But in addition to our own brains and knowing from experience that these foods are highly rewarding, we are encouraged to eat by other people. There are a lot of social situations and celebrations where if you're not drinking or eating certain things, people are uncomfortable and they will ask you why you aren't eating. This literally happened to me two days ago at a birthday party. Some people will be more susceptible to these social pressures than others. I have a people pleaser disposition that I've had to do a lot of work around. So this was a challenging element for me at first. 
I often felt social pressures, but also family pressures. My mom does a lot of cooking. She's an amazing cook, and she showed us her love through food. And when she visits, she wants to make food for me to show her love. And it's been hard for both of us for me to say, no, I don't eat those things anymore. They don't make me feel good. And I'm not saying that you can't eat something to make someone else happy. That's a personal decision. But that's another example of how we can feel encouraged or even pressured to eat certain things because of other people. It is human inclination to want to fit in and do what everyone else is doing, especially when other people are prodding us to eat. As if the encouragement from our own brains and from other people wasn't enough, we are also encouraged to eat by food companies, the people making these products and advertising to us. We are constantly bombarded with carefully crafted messaging. And even though people are more health conscious these days, marketers keep in stride with that. They're still very savvy and come up with ways to spin how their manufactured processed products are healthy. No one these days is claiming that potato chips fried in trans fat are healthy. That ship has sailed. But there are a lot of processed foods and junk that fill the aisles of Whole Foods that are marketed as health food, but are extremely processed and basically just a combination of sugar, carbs, and inflammatory seed oils. One of the most shocking things I've ever learned in my life is the degree to which processed food companies spend time and resources trying to figure out how to get us to buy and eat their snacks more often. They spend a tremendous amount of money on this and on making their products as addictive and rewarding as possible. There's a great article in the New York Times that I've linked to called The Extraordinary Science of Junk Food. It's long. It's too long for me to sum up everything here. But the writer, Michael Moss, does a really deep dive into manufactured foods from numerous angles, and it's just jaw-dropping. Executives at processed food companies know what they're doing. They know that addictiveness means more profit, and profit is the goal. There's a really interesting section in the article where the writer talks about a time that he met with a food scientist named Stephen Witherly and gave him a bunch of different chips to taste. And the food scientist said the Cheetos are, quote, one of the most marvelously constructed foods on the planet in terms of pure pleasure. He ticked off a dozen attributes of the Cheetos that make the brain say more. But the one he focused on most was the puff's uncanny ability to melt in the mouth. It's called vanishing caloric density, Witherly said. If something melts down quickly, your brain thinks that there's no calories in it. You can just keep eating it forever. And even though I don't want to admit this because Cheetos are kind of gross, it's also a relief to hear this because I do find them addictively good. And that is no coincidence. It is by design. There's another great quote from the article where he says, the biggest hits, be they Coca-Cola or Doritos, owe their success to complex formulas that pique the taste buds enough to be alluring, but don't have a distinct overriding single flavor that tells the brain to stop eating. This quote actually reminds me of another fantastic resource if you feel like you want to learn more about all the insanity and grossness of manufactured foods. But there's a book by Joanna Blythman called Swallow This, Serving Up the Food Industry's Darkest Secrets. And in part one of the book called How the Processed Food System Works, the very first chapter is titled Why It All Tastes the Same. And the quotes I shared from the New York Times article pretty much sum it up. There is a formula for maximizing addictiveness and minimizing feeling like you ate anything so that you eat more. One of the beautiful things about carnivore is that you're eating foods that your body understands. Meat, unlike Cheetos, is really tied in with our satiety signals and our body does a really good job 
of communicating when we've had enough steak or chicken. We don't really overeat these things, and we don't need to try to stop ourselves. Our body understands this food. And for me, it has been really helpful to opt out of and not eat these addictive, unnaturally rewarding foods. The foods that I eat on carnivore are ones that I have a healthy relationship with. And I think one of the problems that I had personally with something like keto as a popular diet is that a lot of keto diets and recipes online are all basically how to make these addictive foods we all love with different ingredients that somehow qualify to meet the constraints and macros of the diet, like chocolate-covered cheesecake desserts made with calorie-free sugar alcohols or ketogenic pizzas where the crust is made out of cheese and then you top it with tomato sauce and more cheese. (laughs) This is a ridiculous thing to eat. I mean, no judgment. I've made this kind of pizza before, but it's very clear to me now why carnivore works so much better for me. Another cue that has become really commonplace in modern life is fixing problems with food. Emotions are a big one. Everybody knows the joke about how if your boyfriend breaks up with you, it's time for the Ben and Jerry's. A lot of people use food for emotional management, and I have this inclination too. Food used to be my go-to way of softening emotions and stress in my life. And the irony, of course, is that food never actually fixes those problems. The same problems are still there, but now you have health problems and are overweight too. And it's not just fixing emotions with food in our own lives. I see this integrated into parenting too. I've seen tantrums stocked with sugar or ice cream. And my intention is not to judge here either, but I think it's worthwhile to be aware of these things and ask, is this what I want? Is this how I want to do things? Yes, it is totally normal and socially acceptable to eat a pint of ice cream if your boyfriend breaks up with you. But is that what you really want? Again, personal choice, but probably something that should be consciously chosen with awareness. So I've talked a lot in this episode about these various cues to eat and how common they are in our lives. A cue could be seeing a Chick-fil-A billboard while you're driving down the highway. It could be someone offering you a muffin in the break room, but you can also get cues to eat from the time of day. What's interesting about hunger and desire to eat is that it doesn't work quite how we think. It's a result of our expectations to eat, our cues to eat. The three meals a day standard, for instance, is made up. If you think back to our ancestors, they didn't eat three times a day. This is just our modern standard for eating. And you can actually see differences across cultures around the world. When I lived in Spain, I would have a light breakfast and then a very long multi-course lunch. And then I usually wouldn't eat dinner. Maybe I'd have a topper or two when I was out. But the eating schedule in Spain is different from how we eat in America, where dinner is considered the largest meal of the day. Our body is trained when to expect to eat. You think, oh, it's noon, so it's time to eat lunch. This is a time cue, and it is trained and can therefore be changed. Cues are created all the time, and we can strengthen them or weaken them depending on our choices. I have an example from my life that I can share. Once I started eating healthier consistently for a couple years, I became used to going to the grocery store and not getting any sweets or junk. I wasn't even triggered walking by packages of cookies or potato chips because I had no expectation of getting those things anymore. It just wasn't something that was on the table. I didn't do that anymore. And then there came a day when I had a massive craving for cookies. It was spurred by seeing a really delicious looking recipe on social media. And when I went to the grocery store later that day, I spontaneously and somewhat unexpectedly bought a bunch of cookies and ate them in the car on the way home. This was really unusual for me at that point. 
The next time I went to the store, I literally, right before I pulled into the parking lot, started salivating and getting a huge craving to do the same thing because I had created that cue. I didn't have this before. The temptation wasn't there because I didn't expect it. And now I did. And the craving was really strong. I couldn't believe it. And this really stuck with me because it was the first time when I could see what I knew theoretically about cues actually in my own life. It's really important to become aware of all these cues in your life too, and then know that you can break cues that you've built. It is rough at first because you have to work through desire and not satisfy the urge, but you can absolutely start taking your power back in these situations and not fall victim to the addictiveness and reward cycle. This is something I've worked on a lot and can help you one-on-one if you feel like this is something that's hard for you. So we've talked quite a bit in this episode about our crazy food environment and all the cues we are bombarded with to eat. And what I want to ask you is, what eating cues do you struggle with? Maybe it's stress-driven cues to eat, or maybe it's social cues, or maybe it's time of day cue where you've gotten used to eating late at night. Try to notice these things in your life. Once you start understanding and recognizing these cues, you can really start to change the decisions you make and get more in control over your food. Thanks for listening to The Road to Carnivore. If you found this podcast to be thought-provoking or valuable, please share it with someone who might be interested to hear this information. Maybe someone who hasn't been able to figure out their health problems or might want to hear a different side of the story when it comes to food. I'll see you next time.